0: Democracy is the single most validating principle for governance, so why does a disconnect still exist between the government and the people? This dichotomy between wanting to engage with it and yet being disengaged from it is quite puzzling, and it leads us to ask the following, who or what is contributing to this gap? Is it the government? Is it the people? Is it both? Or could there be some other less visible factor at play? Here to help us with these questions is Saqib Qureshi, author of The Broken Contract. Saqib Qureshi, in his insightful and accessible book, points to the deficit in our democracy and to a new way forward. Drawing on his rich personal and professional backgrounds, Saqib brings a fresh interpretation of what a social contract should look like in a functional democracy. Hey, everyone. This is Rochelle Aboud with the So What File, and I'm delighted to be here today with Sakib Qureshi, author of The Broken Contract, Making Our Democracies Accountable, Representative, and Less Wasteful. Sakib, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the So What File podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Likewise. So to set the tone uh, for the conversation to come, I'd like for us first to start with your background, something about what democracy is, the concept of democracy, and why is it important to you?
1: So my background is eclectic. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've had spells in investment banking, management consulting, and government. Uh, now I am uh, an entrepreneur uh, based in Toronto. Um, I have an academic background, sort of, with undergraduate and PhD degrees from the LSE, uh, and I am a fellow still actually uh at the l s c so i 've kept my finger in the in the kind of thinking researching writing universe a bit um, and my focus on democracy really came really out of just being an ordinary citizen it wasn't uh, it wasn't a uh, an an academic interest at first it was kind of a realization that we talk about democracy whether it's in the uk or canada or the us or what have you or other parts of the world we talk about democracy uh and it's become one of those meaningless terms and it just didn't seem to resonate with the kind of social political fabric with within which we are a part of um And what I mean by that is if I break up the word democracy to its um, its etymology, as well as the spirit of the word, it really boils down to people power. That's what democracy is. It's not really the act of voting. Yes, you know, voting is often treated as synonymous with democracy. It's not really about human rights. It's really about people power, you know, ordinary people having control over their government and the more i the more i became aware of that simplicity in definition the more i could see that actually what we have in the modern indirect democracy of the west in particular is not really people power you know we vote every 4 years but there isn't really a manifestation of the ordinary citizen running government or being in charge of government or being on top of the government pyramid.
0: So was there, um, was there like a moment, uh, an epiphany, uh, where that realiza- realization came to fruition in your mind? Like you said, oh my God, I got it. There's this big disconnect and I see it clearly.
1: Yeah, I was at a uh, at a, a city of Toronto government office, a municipal office, and I'd lined up 45 minutes to get some license. Um, it really wasn't very apparent to to anybody, I think, um, which direction to go to. But I got to the till, and I'd apparently ended up lining up for 45 minutes in the wrong line, and the body language and tone of the person who, who, who received my request. It really just couldn't care. I mean, she actually, she basically said, look, you have to go to the other line. And that's the end of that. And I said, well, I've just lined up 45 minutes and it's not particularly obvious to me that there were different lines. And her next response was to go off for a coffee break, you know, and that was literally it (laughs) And from there I went to my coffee break at a private sector cafe uh, to a Tim Hortons. And I thought, wow, the service here is pretty good. You know, <laughs> you, you stand in line for about a minute and a half or a minute, you, you're treated as a human being, you know, this is a nice greeting. And, and then a minute later, you're done, and you've got your coffee in hand, whereas you go to a government agency, and you're typically there for, for a long time. And from there, I began to wonder why is it that the private sector performs, and the public sector, by and large, you know, at least in comparison, does not, you know, it's, I mean, why is it that the that, that long lines, whether in person or on phone calls are very, very typical of, of public sector agencies, and in the private sector, that's less the case. I mean, you know, you don't stand, outside apple typically i mean obviously with covid it's a bit different but typically you don't stand outside an apple store for 45 minutes to be to be engaged to be to be served whereas in government it's not unusual you know and that kind of made me think a little bit about okay who's really in charge of the show here you know the private sector revolves around the consumer and the individual citizen whereas the government sector I'm not quite sure who they revolve around, to be honest.
0: That's so true. You know, that's a very interesting observation you made. And uh, I don't think uh, a lot of people look at it that way. So would you say that moment right there, that vignette you just described, would you say that was like the catalyst for you to get inspired to write your book? Or were you getting inspired before that?
1: No, that was a catalytic moment. It was from there that I began to think uh, about why is it that we talk about a democracy, but doesn't feel like democracy. You know, mm-hmm. Why is it that we, um, you know, I mean, there are there so many manifestations of this. I mean, for instance, I very quickly moved into the direction of our elected MPs. And I, and, I, and, 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 and I thought about, OK, you elect an MP every four years. That MP is actually quite powerless because they have no say in, in very much that MP uh, runs by party lines and chooses their leader as the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister and his office call the shots. Um, And the MP, by the way, is pretty much out of the picture for four years, struggles to get any time with the Prime Minister or the Prime Minister's office. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then after four years, that MP comes back and says, vote for me again. And actually, it's a bit ridiculous because the MP had no... Had no authority, no resources. Um, and not only that, but that particular MP, for instance, you have no idea what they were or were not doing. You know, they, I mean, yes, they'll advertise, you know, on their Twitter handle all of their successes, but who's to really know what it was that they were responsible for, what it was they were doing for four years, you know, you've got no idea. And so. I just, I just kind of thought, hang on a minute, that doesn't sound like an accountable system. That doesn't sound like people power, because in an indirect democracy, what you're really doing is saying, look, the ordinary person doesn't have time to engage all of the, all of the facets of government, uh, all the decisions. So they, so they have this indirect democracy, and they hand it over to somebody else to run. But if you've got no idea what that person is doing, and they've got few resources in the first place to do anything, then what exactly are you holding them to account for and how? I mean, how do I hold my MP to account in four years time when I've got practically no idea what they've done, when I've got practically no awareness of their contribution nine to five, five days a week? And by the way, we live in an era that that allows us to share that information immediately. I mean, it's not very difficult for an MP or any public employee to share their calendar for 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 viewing, you know, so that we can all have a sense as to what they were doing, or at least in terms of who they met and for how long. Exactly. You know? But We don't have that. And I have not even touched upon the 99% plus of government, which we have absolutely no exposure to being the civil service. You know, you've got almost no exposure, and it's quite frightening that it's the same public sector that, that consumes the vast bulk of our taxes, but if you compare its track record to the private sector, it's pretty damn poor. I mean, just to illustrate, I know often people say you can't compare apples and oranges, you know, public sector and private sector, they're different beasts, but what you can do is, is develop basic mechanisms to compare performance and one way of of assessing is the number of sick days. And it's just amazing that in every Western democracy, sick days in the public sector are not just a small percentage higher than in the corresponding private sector, but in many, many cases they are multiples. I mean the The sickest employees in the world are probably right now the Canadian federal civil servants. (laughs) They take off an astonishing, I think, what, four weeks off a year for being ill? And they also have the fattest pensions as well. But, you know, so that kind of stuff, it was like, hang on a minute, we need to start talking about this. We've got to get it out there that that the 1% that we elect, we don't really have much accountability over. We don't know what they're doing. They don't have any resources. And the 99%, we've got, we've got no awareness, you know, they may as well be sitting on Mars, you know, um, and they just do what they do. They arrive at nine and they leave at five, uh, very, very few pockets of outperformance. They're sick, remarkably, uh, often, uh, without a culture of performance. You know, it's like, and 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 underlying all of this is that we forget that the taxpayer isn't Typically, you're a multimillionaire driving a Porsche. The taxpayer includes people who simply can't afford it. The, the, the homeless pay taxes. You know, they pay taxes on their basic goods. You know uh, old-age pensioners pay taxes on their on their goods, on their homes. You know, even children, when they go out and buy, you know, stuff at the candy store, there's tax, right? And we just kind of forget that that hang on a minute the tax system is 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 not just a bucket that comes from you know the rich and wealthy it's a bucket that's by and large filled by ordinary people and what we don't want is ordinary people some of whom r- who really can't afford to pay we don't want to take their money for a ride we don't need civil servants taking off an extraordinary amount of sick days in the public sector you know with some of the fattest and most generous pension plans in the world, I mean we just don't need it
0: so would you would you say it's fair to say then that the taxation is disproportionate to the representation in Western democracies today
1: so taxation is one of those things that you that that you have to pay it on time every time without mm-hmm. any choice okay so so, so that's a given, you know, and if it's late by day, you're charged interest. And in some cases, if it's late too much and the amount is too big, you end up going to prison. Um representation. We don't have that. Rep- we don't have representation. I mean, you know, I mean, so so I kind of view representation in two buckets and neither of those two buckets is adequate, is, is sensibly uh, uh, filled. Bucket number one is that the ordinary person or the population is represented in the senior decision-making of government, okay? Now, you don't have to be a genius to work out that in North America, we've only had um, a head of, we've only had a chief executive for about 137 days. Um, um, that was a woman. That was very briefly in Canada, uh, a, very, a very brief few days that Canada had a female prime minister. The U.S. has never had obviously, a female prime minister, uh, president. So, so my point is that in the upper echelons of government, you know, there is, there is not representation by gender. There certainly isn't by ethnicity. There isn't by age either, which is quite important because the, the, the 19, 20, 25, 30-year-old of today, they have a very, very different set of uh, tools and instruments available to themselves through technology and ways of looking at problems and solutions which the average 75 year old or 70 year old may not be able to totally comprehend. Um, And so we don't have that representation of, you know, in that upper decision-making. The people who are there by and large are wealthier. They're better educated. um, They have all sorts of uh, comforts in life. Very, very few of them have ever experienced homelessness. So, by that by that measure of representation, we're not doing great. Um, if we if if we use representation as you know somebody who's going to go out there and fight for me, you know, be my representative in a kind of advocacy sense. Okay, given given the very very limited influence that MPs actually have and our elected representatives actually have with the senators and and. Uh, house representatives in the us um given the very limited influence they have and given the fact that 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 our government or 99 percent of it isn't remotely interested in listening to us because they're completely detached living on their own planet being the civil service it, it's very difficult to make the case that we have representation you know we don't i mean Yes, we can, we, you know, we can get very excited by the fact that we have a vote every four years, but you know that is a very static moment. You know, that's a very static moment, and in the modern era, it's flooded by an avalanche of information, disinformation, packs of lies, and all the rest of it. So for those few days that you are engulfed in that electoral process, you are hit with a titanic deluge of... Nonsense and clean information and everything else in between, but then for the remaining, you know, four years or five years or whatever the term is, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have people advocating for you. I mean, I've, it's just, it's just, um, it's not there, and and you don't need to be a genius to work out that ninety-nine percent of the people who are part of your so-called a democracy were not elected. They have you know, you really have not, you have no meaningful relationship with that massive core, which is your government.
0: I totally agree. And uh, what explains, do you think, this sort of like people settling, I guess, for just voting and thinking that's what democracy is all about? What explains the dichotomy between like wanting democracy and then being totally disengaged from it?
1: I think the disengagement levels are high uh, and I think they'll just continue. I think people have um I think there's a general distrust of democracy especially amongst younger generations um, and that is not going anywhere I don't think um, many of us are incredibly busy and the technological revolution that we are living through at the moment has had many positives but one of the negatives is that we've got no we've got no spare time we we you know i mean now there's something to do all the time you just need your phone or your ipad in front of you and you could be glued for 6 hours whereas 50 60 years ago we had a lot more time to reflect and contemplate and not be engaged in the moment you know not be firing you know, uh, computer games and YouTube channels and all the rest of it. You know, We actually had a lot more time to reflect. I mean, we weren't pushed around so much. Now there's so much for us to do. We have so much access. There's so many things that we can be doing that we don't have time. And, and the problems of government and democracy get kind of squeezed out bit by bit by bit. Um, and I think there comes a point where we are just so fed up with with the way government is that we just don't see a way out of it. We don't see we don't see the system working for us. I mean, you know, it's it's broken. It, it's a system which which it's clear the citizen in any Western democracy trusts less and less um, to the point that you could argue that if it continues like this in the next 10, 15 years, there could be some very, very serious repercussions for our institutions. But I don't really think that the people who are running the show are remotely thinking about fixing the issues, partly because their own position is so entrenched in the system. You know, uh, They've played the political game for such a long time, invested so much money, hours, sweat, and expertise, that to tell them, actually, you've got to rip this all up, and think about democracy at a meaningful level as opposed to uh, the charade of elections every four years is asking a bit much, I think. I think it's asking for a bit too much political leadership um, and altruism almost. But, you know, we've had a few shocks. We've had a few... I mean, I think Donald Trump was in part... His election was in part a bit of a shock to us because people spoke and they voted him in and they almost voted him a second time. You know, that's gotten people thinking that what's going on here. Um, but I still think that generally speaking, we live in this kind of comfortable notion that because we have elections, therefore people see it's democracy and therefore people are going to sign up and be good with it. And I'm not really sure that holds for much longer.
0: So since we're on the topic of, well, not on the topic, but since we've mentioned Donald Trump and, the, and in the context of your um, uh, book, The Broken Contract, how do you explain the Capitol Hill riots that took place back in January?
1: The uh, attacks in, on the Congress building?
0: Yes. Uh,
1: this is frustration. This is basically a bunch of people who are just so fed up with, with, the, with the system that they will do whatever it takes to prevent that system coming back. You know? um, and I think underlying a lot of that, there are kind of two pieces to this in my, in, from my perspective. There's, an, there's, there's one piece, which is the economics of, um, of the last 40, 50 years, um, especially since the Thatcher, uh, Reagan um, era. Mm-hmm. Uh, income per capita has not risen. For the vast vast majority of people, you know it 's been very static, wealth generation has has benefited a tiny minority of people it 's not benefited the masses uh, there are some there are some stratas of of the economy which have not seen a per capita real income rise since the Thatcher Reagan era uh, so, a, so, so so what i'm talking about really is a profound economic alienation and frustration and you tie that into the frustration that you get from government which kind of just listens but not really it, you know it kind of you know it sits there in front of your face pretending to be a listening you know democracy but it just kind of Nothing really changes.
0: uh, They practice selective listening, I should say.
1: (laughs) Right, you know, nothing changes. And so you feel financially tighter. You feel your economics are more vulnerable. You feel your job is less secure. And on top of that, you've got a political system which just kind of goes on its own business, you know, where only the wealthy seem qualified to kind of participate in, in any meaningful way. it's just at some point people are going to need to express themselves and say we've had enough and so the riots that took place you know a bit of a shock to everybody uh, but I thought it was quite understandable I thought it was like hang on a minute these guys are fed up they really are like fed up as are many other people you know it's not like they're a tiny minority of one percenters who are kind of satisfied with the way democracy is working in the US no I mean the satisfaction levels with respect to democracy in the U.S. have collapsed, and there's not much evidence of them rising up again, even in the Biden um, the Biden government. So, to my, I mean, I, 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 wasn't really very surprised by by seeing this outburst. I actually thought it would get a whole lot worse.
0: Would you say that's a signal of? or a symptom of a broken contract as we understand it like a social contract you know what you know what a social contract is right. if you could talk to us a little bit about that and explain it to our audience and then kind of we can segue into um, you know the uh, the idea behind the book the title and how that' yeah. Is connected
1: yeah so I mean you're right I mean the, the kind of broken contract does refer to the social contract made famous by by Rousseau, but it's been used in multiple uh, nuances uh, in multiple geographies over many many years, and in its simplest sense, you know, it's about the people giving taxes and authority to a government so that the government works for the people. That I mean, kind of, I'm just kind of really reducing it to its nuts and core. Yes, you know, it's about It's that relationship, you know, it's a a two way relationship, Uh, the taxation, the granting of authority, the, you know, we'll, we'll try and live by the rules and the laws, but in return, you know, you as the government will do good things for us, protect us, will develop us, will, you know. Do all the things that we expect of the public sector, and I think that's just ruptured. I think what you have now is that the government demands taxation and compliance with law um, and in return um, it's it's not really fulfilling its part of the bargain and specifically, what I began realizing was that was that was that within this contract in and I know it varies in different political ecosystems but in in the one that we live in in, in, in Western democracy, Western liberal democracy, our contract is something along the lines of, the citizen will do what they're meant to do, but we want accountability from government. We want representation in government, and we want government to use our tax dollars well. You know, we we want a certain degree of efficiency in the way our money is spent. You know, those are the kind of three pieces very emotional pieces that we hold on to i I think people are not upset if they themselves don't vote they are very upset if they think their government's not accountable or if they think the taxes that they paid were squandered that's when temperatures rise quite a bit and i think i think that's where the contract is broken because the political system doesn't, doesn't allow for accountability. Like I said, you, know, you choose your MP or your senator and representative, and fundamentally, they just toe the party line. They don't have resources. They don't have much independence. Okay? They don't really have the ability to get stuff done. Um, uh, you can't hold them accountable because you don't know what they're doing for four years. You really have no idea. Uh, as for government waste, I mean, practically every major infrastructure project launched by government is over budget and late. And what's interesting is that nobody's head is chopped off for it. There's nobody, nobody's is fired for that. Nobody is taken to task. It's just like, oh yes, you know what, one committee after another, one, you know, one delay after another, and. Uh, and before you know it, a four-year project is taking seven years, and it's added 70% to the bottom line. Who's paying? Taxpayers are paying. You know? So we don't really have that sense of government efficiency either. I mean, you just look at the number of sick days in the public sector compared to the private sector, that's it. You don't need much more evidence of tax dollar efficiency or lack of it. And representation, again, You know, every single US president happens to be you know, a relatively old, white male. We've had one exception, okay. To that, he was relatively old and he was male, but he was um, of of mixed heritage, mixed mixed ethnic heritage. You know, the I mean, Canada isn't really much better. Is one white male after another. Uh, the UK has had a bit of a better track record with a couple of female prime ministers, but again, you know, all relatively aged compared to the average population uh, highly educated uh, uh, white you know with a, with a very kind of you know unrepresentative uh, senior elite policymaking government to support them
0: yes. and
1: so by I mean if you just break down what democracy means to us in the context of our of our social contract you know, efficiency of with taxes, representation and accountability. We don't have it, you know, we just don't have it. I mean, there's a park that was being built across my street, which actually uh, became, became an issue that I wrote about in my book. That park was talked about, the first concept was in 2010. It's now 2021, it's still not built. Now, what's interesting is that you have nobody to hold account to.
0: Well, I want to circle back to those three uh, key issues troubling our democracy, which you uh, discuss in your book, accountability, representation, and wastefulness. But before I get there, I still want to kind of dig a little bit deeper about the social contract. Um, Would you say that the social contract has been rewritten without the consent of the governed?
1: No, I don't think it's been rewritten Mm -hmm. um, because I think the expectation amongst the citizen population um, hasn't really changed. Um, I, I, you see, I mean, this social contract is clearly an uncodified; it is an unwritten document. Okay, it's not even a document; it's actually a relationship. Um, So the question that I'm that you're asking is, do, do, do the citizen? Sorry, does the citizen body, um, does it now think that government does not owe it a sense of accountability, representation, and efficiency? And I'm and and I don't think that's changed. I think ordinary people still expect that of government, and people often entering government, whether elected or otherwise, that's also something that they're aware of. I don't think I don't think that's been rewritten. I think what's happened is that the public sector has quite fundamentally ignored it. It's -hmm. just not interested. Um, And, and ordinary citizens have responded with a combination of frustration and apathy. Um, Well, you have to keep in mind that the social contract was less adhered to a century ago than it is today. So at one level, things are better now than they were a century ago. Mm -hmm. Government is more accountable. It is more representative than it was a century ago. And it is also more efficient with its taxes. However, what's changed is the the citizen body has changed at two levels. Its ability to access information and analyze it has gone through the roof. So... 50 years ago, I would have struggled to find out the number of sick days per year that the public sector takes in, let's say the federal government of Canada. Today, I can just do it in about five, 10 minutes of Google searching. So we have information at our fingertips. Okay, Mm -hmm. And we we also have a huge um, explosion in news sources uh, and news narratives. And so that kind of skeptical, you know, uh, um, apathetic, frustrated citizen now has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to coalesce with in social media and and also in in news platforms that tow a particularly um, um, anti-government line
0: yeah in your book you say there's over 1.5 billion websites out there yes like a tech state that's operating on its own um so with a plethora of websites and information outlets out there how do we like untangle truth from falsehoods so we can engage our democracy in a more meaningful way
1: oh wow that's a huge epistemological question um (laughs) Yeah, I mean, how do you go about disengaging truth from non truth? I think I mean there are a few things that there are you know there, there are a few principles that I would like to kind of throw out there, which is which which are kind of common sense almost in government. And and one of them should be if a public sector employee is caught lying about any aspect of their work, then they get fired. That's not the case today. Mm-hmm. Politicians lie, you know, they make up stuff. And nobody seems to respond to it. They get away with it. And I just don't think that's acceptable. I mean, if I employed somebody in my office and they were caught lying about their work, yeah, you know what? That's it. They don't really have much of a leg to stand on. And I don't understand why I'm paying taxes to support the salaries of people who have lied in their jobs. And so, yes, you do have a bit of a challenge, but how do you establish that? How do you go about... Demonstrating that somebody has lied and the fine, the fine boundaries and the fine lines and what have you. But in many, many, many cases, the lies are flagrant. You know, they're not just a bit of topspin. They are just absolutely obscene. And to have a system which does not reprimand to hold people to account for lying, you know, is is just a it's is just a disgrace. I think there's no there's no reason why we can't put together a basic mechanism which tears apart those people who go about lying in their everyday job you know uh,
0: I think yeah. in your book you suggest something about um, about uh, policing the government and having open calendars and churning. are those the mechanisms mechanisms you're referring to, and can you please walk us through a little bit
1: um, so Open government, I think it it helps making government transparent I'm not so sure I'm not so sure that it deals directly with the kind of issue of politicians lying, but yes, you know you 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 get a much tighter sense as to what somebody's calendar is about and' is not about uh, churning, I think is very, very important i mean um, I'm a big advocate of forcing elected representatives out of office every, I don't know, 12 years. They, I mean, that's it. That's their lifetime done, uh, 12, 15 years in in uh, elected office. And after that, they should leave. And even the civil service, public servants, you know, 25, 30 years, and that's it. That's their cap done. They should go into the private sector. The pushback that what people often throw at me with respect to the elected representatives who stay beyond 12-15 years is that, look, you know, they were elected. The people want them in. But what they fail to realize is that, number one, um, we want democracy. We're not interested in, we're not primarily interested in the voting mechanism. The voting mechanism is a means to achieving democracy. Democracy is all about people power. Okay. So the goal of our political system or, 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 our, or, or, or our government needs to be a democracy. And if sometimes the voting system that we've attached to it, if it doesn't engineer that democracy, we have got to protect that democracy and override the voting system and say, actually, you know what? This person's time is done. Okay. We, need to, we need to remove him so somebody else has the opportunity to participate you know, and take ownership of government. We need more people in and out of the senior echelons of government in order for the public to own their own institution. At the moment, you've got many, many, many MPs and senators and representatives who have been stuck in office, in elected office for 30, 40 years. I mean, you've got some people who were first elected when JAWS came out. You know, they're still there. It's like, dude, you know what? Go get a real job. Instead of all this politicking, go get a job which you, in which you are actually held accountable at the end of every day. You know, So churning, I think, is good for democracy. It's also good for the citizen body. It's not good for elected representatives who have an unfair advantage in in, in uh, standing up for office for the second, third, fourth, ten years and getting in financing to support them. It's not good for them and they'll advocate against it till the cows come home, but it's good for the people who own the democracy and it's also good for our system. Uh, and as for the public servants, the unelected representatives, you know, there's a very kind of similar theme to it, which is that why is it that, that in the private sector you are as an employee, typically highly accountable, you know, every day you're accountable, you feel the pressure, you feel this kind of need to do well, whereas in the public sector, it's just, you know, it's impossible to be fired. It's actually harder to be fired in the federal government of Canada than it is to to join NASA on the astronaut program you have a much better chance of applying to NASA on the astronaut program and getting selected as an astronaut than you have of being a federal government employee in Canada and being fired. Wow. Well, Hmm. we don't need that. We actually need our public sector to outperform the private sector because the public sector not only has a much more important mandate in many cases, but is forcing... I mean, I'm really, I'm, I'm really the right word here. It's forcing mm-hmm. some of the poorest people in the country to pay for it. It's actually forcing. It's not giving them the option. So, if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to get the homeless people to pay into your coffers, you had better make sure that you are outperforming anything else that they have access to.
0: So, Sokid, um in your book, you state that you how ha- you hope that you uh, initiate a dialogue about this about this need to, to kind of change democracy with with the ideas that you proposed like policing the government open calendars churning um, how how well has your message been received and what kind of do- dialogue have you had since you've published your book
1: yeah so I think a lot of people have come back to me and said that they had no idea it was like this so it's been quite refreshing from that perspective for me to hear that feedback and people say yeah you know what you've put stuff in writing in very simple language and you've made me aware of things that I kind of knew but I never put them together and, and it's made a big impact on me so that's been that that's been refreshing I think really making people aware of the political system they're part of um and how it's stacking up or not stacking up is is really an important thing because i think education in the in the most kind of fungible sense is is really important if we are to get our democracy back on track um i've not really had much resistance um to the core messages. I think the people in the political establishment, who have a deep vested interest in, in pres in 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 preserving the system. Mm -hmm. um, They have pushed back at times with number one, you know, you are missing an important facet of government, which is the, the purpose of government is to employ people. And I go No, not really. I don't agree with that. Because because if, if because because you're because in doing so you are completely overlooking the fact that too many people who cannot afford to pay taxes end up paying taxes you know and you should treat that funding as as almost sacrilegious it's like you know what i mean i mean i'm not in the business really of taking payments from the homeless but i can assure you that if if people who were simply struggling to put food on their tables were coming to me and paying me for whatever, I mean, there's no way I'm kind of taking off four weeks a year um, on sick leave. It doesn't feel ethically right. Um, So I've not really had much resistance. I think the people in the system don't want to engage because at the heart of it, they know. I think most MPs and Senators, well, less senators, but certain representatives, um, you know, their job function is just quite kind of a glorified PR exercise. It's not really, you know, it's, they don't really have much authority. They don't really have resources. Most MPs can't get half an hour with, the, with, with their own prime minister. Most representatives can't get half an hour with congressional leaders you know it's not it's just the reality that that they live in but they don't really want to present that to the outward facing public because it doesn't do their brand and their identity any good
0: so since we're talking a little bit of comparison here um, having traveled quite a bit and having lived abroad um, do you did you experience democracy differently in different countries and how so
1: yeah, you know what, I've had, a, I've had some experiences in, in different democracies and also in, in, in uh, monarchical dictatorships. And mm-hmm. what I found odd, what I found really perplexing was uh, living in Dubai for five years. Um, I found it really odd that government, that the public sector tended to be, not always, but tended to be a lot more frightened of losing its job than in the private sector. Um, it was a lot more. It was a lot more uh, stressed about about word going up the chain that that person or department wasn't doing a good job. Interesting. You know, and for that reason alone, you often felt, yeah, you know, these guys are on the ball. Not always, okay. But you've often felt that, you know what, these guys actually feel that their job could be on the line. So they do make more of an effort. Whereas coming out to London or Toronto or Washington DC, it's like I say, it's close to impossible to fire a, a, a public employee. It's, it is a real uphill task. In which case that person can be, you know, Apathetic and indifferent, and somewhat miserable, and you know, perfectly up to them. You know, so, you have no recourse.
0: How much? How much influence do you think culture has on the inter- interpretation of democracy? Since we're talking about Dubai and the UK and the United States, do you think culture has any say in this?
1: So, culture. So, purpose. democracy. Yeah. Sorry, after you.
0: No, I'm sorry, from your personal experience I'm speaking here, like your, your personal experience, not necessarily political experience, just personal experience.
1: I think democracy is a culture. It's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a culture, it's a set of expectations with respect to relationships. Yeah? So, so it's definitely not, um, d- d- democracy is not really about laws and regulations and legislation. Yes, there's a piece to that. But the core of democracy is about expectations, relationships, culture, a culture of society. Um, And um, it, you know, like any organisation, changing and refining culture is not easy to do. Um, It's not something that comes uh without repercussions it takes time but it does require typically it does require somebody to kind of put their foot down and say yeah you know what this is the way our democracy is going to run um there is no real you know if i focus on the gulf countries in the middle east just for a moment Mm -hmm. um dubai is something of an exception because its ruler reasonably high performance individual you know he's a he's a hard-working uh individual who wants his emirate his 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 country to do well um and is pushing government to be part of that whereas other monarchical dictatorships in the gulf don't really have that you know um saudi is a great example much lower performance culture um and they just don't have it the you know and so the point that i'm making is that the culture of democracy may not be as contingent on the system of electing or not electing representatives as we would like to think it does hmm. um
0: Imbued yeah. from people, it has to be imbued from within, like it has yeah. to part of their fabric, their political culture. Is that what you're saying? So it becomes quieter, yeah their identity, no. as their overall identity.
1: So in a kind of perverse way, you might end up with a democracy which has almost no um, voting to it, but is way more accountable, representative and tax-efficient than one that's elected. It's not, you know, it's not a ridiculous statement. I mean, I would would go so far as to say that there are many countries in the world where the citizen body, by and large, thinks that it will get better people power with a military takeover.
0: Hmm.
1: Pakistan, being where my parents migrated from many, many years ago, is an example of a country where there are Tens of millions of people who think that there is a better people power when the armed forces take over than people power than when the crooks and criminals of the civ- of, 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 of civil society engineer their way into the hotspots of prime minister and president so it might, you know it, it sounds a bit weird because we have such a fusion between democracy and votes that we can't recognise that you can have democracy and not have votes, and you can have votes and not have democracy. But I think the important point I'm making there is that, that voting or voting systems, and indirect democracy, they are all means to democracy, and and by definition I'm saying. That there might be other means, and I'm also flagging that the voting mechanisms, effectively, not so much from a technical perspective but from a cultural perspective, may be so compromised that they don't actually achieve anything near what a democracy is meant to do.
0: Yes so. We're still on the topic of different countries, um, Pakistan, Dubai, United States, and I know you mentioned in your book um, the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, correct? Correct me. Yes. Yeah. So why did you choose those, quote unquote, highly democratic countries to discuss the issue of the broken contract?
1: Okay. So, I mean, I'm glad that you put that highly democratic in quotations because I'm not I'm not bought into their being uh exceptionally democratic, but I wanted to probe, I wanted to probe the democracy that I've experienced um and that I've been part of more than any other. I mean, I've been a kind of born in London, lived most of my life in the UK, um, and have experience of some of the other democracies that were mentioned, and it was like, you know, the they have a Western liberal uh, um, identity, there are some very significant similarities, not only in the political system, but also in their socio political culture, you know, so I wanted to kind of treat them as one, I, 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 I dare be sworn homogenous entity, but you know, I thought that there were a good cluster of, of countries to look at. Um, There's a very strong obviously relationship there with the UK Um, and I just wanted to kind of probe deeper and I think there's another piece really, which is that, you know, I've, I mean, you know, there are so many different types of, of political system out there. I mean, I'm not talking in terms of the names or the kind of identities, but in, in, in terms of their actual realities. Um, and I've only had exposure to meaningful exposure to a few. So, so stick to that as opposed to trying to kind of empathize with how government in Congo or you know in Indonesia is put together. Because I've just not had enough experience. You know, I just don't have that expertise, and I'm not you know I'm, I'm I'm I'd 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 rather not write about things I don't know much about.
0: So. So I want to circle back a little bit uh, to the three pieces we, dis- we discussed earlier, the accountability, representation, wastefulness. Um, out of the five countries, which country do you think has trouble with, most, the most trouble with those three pieces from your observation?
1: Oh, the US, I think, because of the, because of the um, uh, quantum of capital that is thrown about during the election process more than anything else, um, that decimates, uh, people power. There is, there are practically no limits, um, uh, and, and those unlimited funds can be used and are used, uh, to make stuff up, to throw out packs of lies without consequence to flood people, um, and for that reason alone, that really, to me, is the big distinction. Because in terms of representation, there isn't really that much to distinguish the five democracies. In terms of efficiency, there's not really that much to distinguish the democracies. The, the, the real issue becomes um, with respect to accountability and, was, and, 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 was, and really around the capital that those who are in the system, who are elected... Who have significant sums of money to throw around, the capital, the money that they can put into the system, um, and 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 try and convince others. There's 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 no there is no getting away from the corrosion caused by the U.S. Constitution or the interpretation by the Supreme Court that that funding political parties and political campaigns and political messages is a freedom of expression. It's like, yes, that's great, but you've just kind of killed the the, uh, goose that lays your egg because the goose that lays your egg is the democracy that you have. And if you don't protect it um, from unlimited funding, then at some stage or another, you will stifle that form of governance, which I think has happened. So I think the U.S., definitely to, in, in 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 my mind stands out as the outlier uh, compared to the other four i mean i suppose australia is not too far behind uh, but they are coming to terms with the challenges and uh, issues surrounding campaign funding i mean they are significantly more ahead and canada which is where i live you know, really has done a tremendous job on putting a cap on the ability of businesses and wealthy individuals to bankroll um, parties and individuals. You know, they've done, I mean, out, out here, Ottawa has really taken a tremendous lead in the last 30, 40 years, put a real clamp on it. And I think we're we're so much better off for it. Um, the sums that are thrown around in the U.S. political system are are, are nauseous and embarrassing. Uh, the... Um, the money spent in presidential campaigns alone—if you use that to have a meaningful impact on the homeless in the U.S., it would be just amazing. You know, you would have—you would have removed tens of thousands of people off the streets for an entire year. But I don't know. I mean, you know, it's not really my country. But if—if—if if, if U.S. citizens don't put a stop to it. Um, I think their situation is going to get worse. And what's ironic is that there's been so much by way of independent surveys um, that demonstrate that the US citizenry does want a clamp on the, on the amounts of money used during election campaigns. But the people in Congress, for reasons which you know are pretty obvious, don't really want to make that happen.
0: Very before i i let you go i just want to kind of circle back to you a bit um and your background so given your background in economics how has that informed your angle on how democracy should look like
1: um so fortunately my my phd was in uh, uh, international relations and epistemology. So it doesn't really have too much of an economics background. Um, I prefer to see my book from the vantage point of a citizen. I'm not an academic in the space of government. I have no political ties. I am not seeking to run for elected office. I'm not employed by the public sector. You know, I'm just a citizen. And I thought, you know what? That ought to be the vantage point. That ought to be the ultimate vantage point to assess uh, democracy, um, to assess people power. So it's, I mean, the economics, the, I mean, obviously you can't, you can't totally detach economics from governance. Um, there's so many aspects of it, taxation, political fundraising, distribution of wealth, know they feed into issues of 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 government and and economic policy but i didn't want to i didn't really want to entertain looking at these issues through the lens of an economist Um, i thought the thing to do really is to just write it as 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 i am a citizen of my country who's concerned about the way The government is run and concerned about the way the vast quantum of taxes that are uh, extracted from me on time, every time um, are used.
0: So I know you mentioned that you are not looking to run for any kind of political office, but do you think that will change down the road if things change with democracy and how it's being run?
1: Um... Probably not because the personal sacrifice involved in having a meaningful change would be quite extraordinary. Um, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I find myself useful in civil society and, and my, and the community that I'm a part of, I, I find myself useful there. Um, and really it's a personal trade-off. It's a trade-off along the lines of look, I don't want to make gandhi level sacrifices to my life I, I like it as it is um and if if i can make a difference um at a small scale then then i'll do so but i'm I really am not interested in in elected office i don't like the circus um and the, and the sheer um uh, manipulation of information The having the To toe the line of your party leader you know uh it just feels like a bit of a monkey exercise really i mean i've got a brain i've got you know i i just don't need my intellectual orders coming from some 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 bureaucrat frankly um i'd rather think for myself and so the party political system pretty much wouldn't entertain that and i'm not really sure that there's much scope to do anything on an independent basis, even if I did want to make that level of sacrifice.
0: Thakib, this has been a pleasure and I'm excited for your new book, The Broken Contract, Making Our Democracy Accountable, Representative and Less Writable, which can be found on Amazon, correct?
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Yeah, great. So before I let you go, was there anything you wanted to add that we didn't cover? And where can people find you?
1: Well, I have a blog, drsq.com so that drsq.com, Uh and so they can contact me through that um, and I'm hoping to shake up another tree later this year with my next book on uh, on Islam uh, titled Emancipating Islam so that will also be a bit of a shake up in the same way that Democracy got its shake up I feel writing one about oh, uh, my religious identity could be one that uh, deserves a bit of a Uh, a dusting
0: do you anticipate a date for it coming out
1: oh sorry yes Um, uh, we're talking ballpark September October of this year
0: can't wait for it again thank you so much Saqib it was a pleasure
1: thank you take care
0: you too Bye bye
1: bye